of God's sovereign kingdom. But as such, there is an inevitable clash with the earthly sinful powers that would oppose the power of God. There is another prince, a prince who stands behind all of the earthly princes, the the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the prince of darkness. And he stirs up the enemies of God's son and king, and they come to him in this text attempting to ensnare him. And they set for Jesus three sets of rhetorical traps to trip him up, to make him look foolish, to get him in trouble. They run from verses 22 down through the, uh, the end of the chapter. Um, actually, they run from about verse 15 down through the end of the chapter. Uh, this morning, our text will begin in verse 22. The first test that they set or the trap that they set is a kind of a political trap having to do with the Roman poll taxes we looked at last week. The second test which we'll see today, is a theological uh, challenge. The first test was designed to shake the popular support that Jesus had, or even better, to get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. The second test is designed to embarrass him and discredit his theology, to make it appear to be absurd. And so our text begins in verse 22. Uh, excuse me, verse 23, actually. The same day, Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were... Seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, and down to the seventh. Now, after them all, the woman died. So in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, there were three basic positions within first century Judaism regarding resurrection and life after death. Uh, Josephus The historian explains some of this. Some of it you see even in the scripture itself. There were the Pharisees, 
And the Pharisees believed that humans have an immortal soul, and they believed in the resurrection of the body. And then there were the Essenes. The Essenes were basically dualists. They believed in in, in the the goodness of of the soul. Uh, They believed in an immortal soul, but they believed that the body was like a just like a prison, simply, that, that kept the soul uh, intact until the soul finally escaped its earthly prison. Uh, the Sadducees, these men did not believe in life after death at all, either in immortal souls or in the resurrection of the body. And Acts 23.8 explains that as well. Now, the Sadducees come to Jesus, and they know, or at least they suspect, that Christ believes in the immortality of souls and the resurrection of God's people, the resurrection of the body. So they come to him and craft a question that is an attempt to show the absurdity of his theology, to discredit him publicly. And so they present him a scenario. Some of you maybe have seen the movie Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, okay? This is this the story is one bride for seven brothers, which you know sounds a little creepy. Uh, the roots of this, of course, go back to the Old Testament, and there is a principle, a concept in the Old Testament that came to be called Leveret marriage. It's described in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And basically it was a means of provision for what would have been an otherwise destitute widow. And within Israel's unique tribal inheritance laws, it was also a means of preserving both the family line and the possessions of the family, which were really never to leave the the family. So the when the husband died, if, if he left his wife childless, they didn't have any heirs, then the husband's nearest family member was obligated to come and marry the widow to bear children that might inherit the family's property and so care for that woman and for her family going forward. And this is, of course, the context in which the Sadducees contrive this story, which, at least to me, seems so incredible that it seems made up in order to demonstrate the foolishness of belief in resurrection. And, of course, the story is the woman marries and no children, and she marries again the brother, and then they have no children, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. Seven brothers One woman, no children, they're all dead. Now they're in heaven. (laughs) Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. As if to say, Jesus, your belief in the resurrection is foolish. It it makes this woman a a six-fold adulterer. Uh, Your theology is not very well thought out. And... They leave it with Jesus. And here is Jesus' response. First of all, he just rejects their 
own underlying theology, which is unexpressed, but well known to everyone that they do not believe in immortality and resurrection. He says, verse 29, he says, you are wrong. Mark actually has him saying, you are quite wrong. And I, and I think that's significant because a lot of people today complain that, you know, arguing about theology is not helpful. It's unnecessarily divisive. We shouldn't worry about, you know, who's right and who's wrong, and, and we should just all just love Jesus. We don't need to divide over doctrine. And I want you to see in the text that that's not the posture that Jesus took. He says, says to them, this position is right, this position is wrong. And I want to plead with you to search the scriptures and, and, and grow into increasing doctrinal clarity. I mean, if God has revealed something in the scriptures, then it is important. And it's important for us to grapple with and to seek to understand and to affirm. This is not to say, of course, that every doctrine is equally central to the Christian faith. I think, I think we ought to learn to do, as, as one Christian leader called it, theological triage. The idea is that there are certain things that are so core to the Christian faith that they are, they are absolutely non-negotiable. There's no room for disagreement on those things. And, of course, we do recognize that there are, there are other things, secondary issues, on which we, we might disagree, and, and, and we should do so graciously and, and fairly humbly. But what I want to, to make certain that we think about is that, that we are beware lest we fall into the idea that theology is unimportant, that that's insignificant, that that divides people and we shouldn't have that. Just love Jesus, right? You realize, I mean, even when somebody says just love Jesus, that actually assumes theology. Because you have to ask yourself, well, who is this Jesus that I'm supposed to love? Because I know some Jews who think very highly of Jesus. And Muslims, in one sense, believe in Jesus. So who is Jesus? That that demands that we grapple with doctrine like Christology, like Trinity, the hypostatic union of Christ. <laughs> or to say, just love Jesus, you might, it just begs the question, what, what does it mean to love Jesus, which calls you to think through the doctrines of soteriology and faith and grace and sanctification and all of that presumes upon your epistemology and how you, how you think about knowledge and, and your doctrine of scripture. You, you just cannot get away, really, from doctrine. This doesn't necessarily mean that, that you need to know all of the 
big theological words. I mean, it's helpful at times, but it doesn't mean that, that we have to know, you know, speak all the fancy words or have some kind of higher education or seminary training or that we need to be super, super smart. But we all have been given a word to continue to understand, to grapple with, and to affirm. I want to say also, as I'm making this point, that this also doesn't mean that just having good theology and being able to give really clear doctrinal answers is enough for your relationship with God. I mean, one of these groups had right theology about the doctrine of the resurrection, right? And in the next chapter, Jesus is going to condemn them from one side to the other. It is not just enough to have a head knowledge of all that God uh, has revealed um, on one certain level, at least. It's not enough to just know the right answers and have good theology and and say the creeds and and hold to the right ones. And without a heart for God, without a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a living, real, growing relationship with Christ. And so I would encourage you to beware of pride and false assurance. But I do want to make this point that Christ, in this context, affirmed the importance of biblical doctrine. You are wrong, he says. We must learn to identify false doctrine and to embrace the true. Now, the second thing that he does is that he highlights the two root causes of their wrong theology. Notice in verse 29. He says, you are wrong because you you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. On the one hand, they failed to think deeply about Scripture, and that was part of the root of their problem, their wrong theology. On the other hand, they didn't apprehend the transforming power of God. Now, that second root cause not apprehending the power of God, that underlies the first part then of Jesus' response, which is a response to their specific question. He's going to deal with that first, the the story that they told about this alleged woman. And so in the end of verse 29, our Lord says, you don't know the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus says it is a mistake to think of life in the eternal resurrected state as just a kind of continuation of this same life that we have now, just kind of going on and on and on and on and on. And that thinking is actually symptomatic of their underappreciation of the power of God, the transforming power of God. 
And it was part of their anti-supernatural worldview that all things, you know, continue on as they were from the beginning of the creation. But friends, resurrection life is greater. It's higher. It's more wonderful than anything that we can even begin to imagine, anything that we have ever experienced in this life. This life is as a dream compared to that life as being awake. So the scripture tells us that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that, that, that God is able to do far more abundantly, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That day when our sanctification will be complete by the power, the transforming power of God. God will make this so. When we see him, we'll, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Then we shall be what we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now, nor could be, soon shall be our own. The eternal body, our eternal life, it will have, I think, much in common with our present life. When Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right, and the uh, the forms of Moses and Elijah, uh, they they appear to him uh, and to the disciples. They they recognize them. the resurrected body of Jesus was recognizable, though perhaps it was different in some respects. Certainly it was different. But there was, so, so I think there is a continuity between this life and the resurrection life, but there are differences too. This is what Paul was arguing in our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He says, there is a, a natural body and there is a, what he called a spiritual or a resurrection body. Not that it's immaterial, but it's, it's now you've moved into the realm of, of the spirit and, and the fullness of, of all that the spirit is bringing to fruition now. It'll all become to pass then. That body will be like this body and yet, and yet not so much greater. Can you imagine living in a body without any effects of the curse? Or in a world without any of the effects of the curse. There's no doubt that the world will be different in some really dramatic ways, even while there is much the same about it. A world with no sin, no curse, no suffering, no death, no immaturity, no growth, at least moral growth. The power of God that these Sadducees did not comprehend, the power of God creates something different in the age to come, something better, something fitted to a life that is not temporary, but eternal. And of course, sexual life is affected by this since procreation belongs 
to marriage, family life. It belongs to a world of life and death and growth. Jesus says, in the age to come, we will be as angels, right? Confirmed in righteousness, not dying under the curse. And so, not marrying and bearing children in order to propagate the race. And so marriage is the institution in which procreation is set. And so marriage is out of place in that age to come. That doesn't mean, I don't believe that, that means that we won't recognize our husband or our wife in our resurrection state, that we won't know our children, or that we won't love them as deeply as we love them now. No, I think it just means that we will love the rest of the people of God with a love that we can hardly fathom now. That every relationship, every relationship among all of the people of the earth who are all God's people will be elevated rather than our relationship with our immediate earthly family denigrated. All others will come up. The, 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 that you, do, you don't know the power of God. I think... But there are some other implications of this as well. Let me just draw out three very quickly. One, love your family, but don't make an idol out of them. Because your spiritual family is far more important and more long-lasting than any blood ties. Number two, if God in his good providence, has not given you a spouse or has withheld children from you, you are not eternally shortchanged in some way. You are part of an eternal family that is far beyond even the closeness of earthly relationships. And number three, Sex is not ultimate. Love is. And that needs to be said in a culture that just idolizes the sexual act and wants to make it the epitome of relationship. The world to come will be filled with a love that we can right now only strain to imagine. Now, the second part of Jesus' answer moves from the specific question that they ask to now to deal with the underlying theology that prompted it. And their wrong theology was rooted in their lack of, of knowledge of the scripture. The resurrection is not revealed as thoroughly in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, but it is explicit. In passages like Job 19, verses 25 and 26, 
where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Or like Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11, the psalmist says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption in the grave. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And of course the greatest demonstration of resurrection life in all of human history would take place just a few days from Jesus' interaction with these Sadducees. But that's a story for another day. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament clearly teaches resurrection, eternal life. But now the Sadducees had had a foundational theological problem. And it was kind of the opposite problem that the Pharisees had in terms of their doctrine of revelation and scripture. In fact, they were critical of the Pharisees because the Pharisees tended to add to the word of God, their own traditions and, and rabbinical teaching and so forth. And of course, Jesus himself um, chided the Pharisees for that error. But where the Pharisees added to the word of God, the Sadducees took away from the fullness of the Old Testament inspired revelation. The Sadducees seemed to rely almost exclusively on the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. That was what they viewed as really uh, authoritative. And while the doctrine of the resurrection may not be explicit in the Pentateuch, it is revealed implicitly. In fact, Luke records Jesus saying, even Moses showed that the dead are raised, Luke 20, verse 37. And so Jesus proceeds with an implicit argument from the Pentateuch itself. And he does so this way. He begins with a quotation. And the quotation is from Exodus chapter 3. Remember what's going on in Exodus 3? Moses is in the wilderness and God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. And Jesus recalls that. He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? Now verse 32 here, which quotes Exodus Exodus 3 verse 6. I, this is the Lord, I am the God of Abraham, 
and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So Jesus starts by quoting that. Then he draws a logical implication from the scripture. He says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, where is that in the Bible? Where does he, where is he drawing that implication from? Well, he doesn't say explicitly, but I, I can't help but think that he, he must have had the entire context of Exodus chapter 3 in his mind. Because in the very passage where the Lord reveals himself to, Abra- to Moses as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, he says in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, Moses says, you know, God sends him to the people of Israel to bring them out of captivity. And he says, who are you? What's your name? How do I, how do I reveal you to the people of Israel? And God says, I am. I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And of course, the very name Yahweh or Jehovah, God's most personal name, perhaps, his covenant name, that name is rooted in the same verb, to be. God just is. He At the very heart of God's self-revelation to his people is this, that he exists, that he lives. In fact, 15 times in the Old Testament, he is referred to as the living God. Who are you, God? I am the living God. I am the one and only God who lives. I am life itself. I am. Now, follow the logic here, because there are certain people who are in covenant with that living God. And in fact, that's the whole point of Jesus' quotation, right? He says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, I am in a unique covenant relationship with him. There's a sense in which God is God God over everybody. So in what sense is he their God? In a special and unique sense, he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. They are in unique covenant relationship with him. And when the eternally existing God enters into an eternal covenant with you, you will live eternally. Though he die, yet shall he live. It cannot be otherwise with the one God who is and who was and who is to come, who is always and forever, I am. John Piper said it this way, if Yahweh is ever your God, then he is forever your God. His being your God secures your foreverness. That's the 
logical argument that Jesus is drawing out of this text and the nature of God. Friends, you cannot be in covenant with the living God and not live. And with that, he astonishes the crowds and he encourages the hearts of everyone who's ever read those words. Because we face death all around us. Just this week, I mentioned Joe Tank. I talked to him on the phone on Monday afternoon sometime. Wednesday afternoon, he has a heart attack. And his truck goes off the road and he's, his life is ended. And I... I just can't tell you how that brought home to me the brevity of life. The COVID-19 virus is going around the world. Hundreds of thousands of people will pass from here into eternity. And I know for some of you, death has come home in a very, very real and personal way with someone that you've loved deeply who is no longer with you. And I tell you today, if, if the Lord is the living God and he is their Lord, then they live and they will live because it cannot be in any other way with the God who is If he is in covenant with them, then they belong to him, body and soul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. And one day he will raise their bodies. He will raise their bodies. And I want you to know, you will touch and hold those ones that you love. You will behold your God. See Christ in the flesh, in his glorified state. You will stand before him on the earth and see and behold your wondrous Savior. And I tell you, in that day, friends, you and I will be more alive than we have ever been in this existence. Our love will be deeper Our family will be larger, and our Lord will be sweeter. At the very end of the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis has the Pevensey children, who are the, the main characters in the story, they're on a train, and all of a sudden, They are jolted once again into the world of Narnia, the world where Aslan reigns, who is, of course, a picture of Christ. And Aslan, the lion in the story, then comes to Lucy and he says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy says, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And you have sent us back in our own world so often. 
No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? And their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There really was a railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one. And the great story which no one on earth had read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Whoever believes in Christ, though he die, yet shall he. Amen. It is so. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, the true and living God who was and is and is to come, our hope and our confidence is in you and the power that you have to transform our lowly bodies and make them like unto Christ's glorious body to complete the work that you have begun in us, to bring our sanctification to its full end and bring us into the age to come. And Lord Jesus, we long to see your face. We long to worship you in the flesh, to thank you, to sing your glories for all eternity. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain us all with that hope that our labor is not in vain if it is in the Lord. Father, I do ask that if there are any ones out there who are listening to this sermon who do not belong to you, who are not in covenant with you, who do not believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that you would yet be merciful to them and awaken them and open their eyes. And even now, even in this moment, that they would cry out to you and ask that you would transfer them from death to life, that you would move them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant them faith, repentance of their vile sin and rebellion against you and faith in the Lord Jesus and hope in him and love for him and, and, and confidence in, in his promises. We pray, Lord, all of this in his blessed 
and holy name. Amen.